Hello everyone and welcome to the first podcast of GARM. Uh, I'd like to extend my thank yous to Arsalan Visuals for providing us with this uh, nice setup. Uh, my first guest for today is Christopher Langner. Full disclosure, we used to work together. So without further ado, Chris. Hi, Christopher. Hi, thank Hi. you very much for having me, first of all. Thank you for being here. So Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I can call myself an emerging markets guy. I spent uh, 11 years in Sao Paulo, which is in Brazil. That's where I'm from originally. Seven years in New York, where I used to cover all of Latin America. Six years in Singapore, where I used to call, cover all of Asia. And now I've been here for about three years, uh, covering the Middle East and Africa. And it's been a beautiful learning journey here. I started working as a journalist in 1998 in Sao Paulo. And I was a financial journalist then, economics first and then financial. I spent seven years in New York, as I mentioned before, after that. And I spent 20 years as a financial journalist until finally I moved into financial analysis, first with a distressed debt startup and now with First Abu Dhabi Bank as a macro strategist. You've actually seen three, three bubbles throughout your life. The dot-com bubble, the 2008 financial crisis, and the one that we're going through right now. So can you tell us how these are similar or different to what we're seeing at the moment? Okay, well, interesting. I, I've seen two bubbles. I'm not sure I can call this one a bubble, and I'll tell you why in a second. But I've seen more crises because, as I told you, I started in 1998, and... In 2002, Argentina defaulted on its debt, and that was a time when there was the Latin American crisis. Uh, so I saw that one very close up front. I interviewed the Minister of Finance for, for Argentina at the time, a guy called Domingo Cavallo, three months before they defaulted. So I, I remember that one very clearly. Um, the thing that you want to look at at a bubble is when there is too much exuberance, when you're only buying something expecting to sell it to the next guy for a higher value, not because of its inherent value, but just because you think that people are gonna pay more for it. And this was the case in the dot-com bubble, as you just mentioned. At one point, you had companies that were trading simply on the number of clicks that they had. They, they would do an IPO and they say, my website has 10,000 clicks, and, and that was the valuation. There was no forecast of earnings and people would buy that stock knowing that the next guy would buy it for a higher price. And the same thing happened with the housing bubble in the United States. And full disclosure, I got caught up in the dot-com bubble. I was working for a startup when the dot-com bubble hit Brazil and I, I was laid off. And I was in the US when the the home 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 price bubble happened. I moved there in 2004, I left in 2012. Um, funnily enough, I bought a house in October 2008. So I saw those very up close, very close front. Um, and again, I remember, for example, this gym teacher who didn't have a place to live until mortgages became so easy in the United States. And within four months, he had five houses and he was expecting that he was going to sell all of them within a year at a 20% profit. So this is the whole marker of a bubble. You don't see that now. You see some people getting excited about stocks, but stocks still have inherent value. Even the people who are professionals can see value going forward in stocks, whereas, again, it may be the case, for example, for Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is something where you only buy it expecting that the next guy is going to buy it for a higher price. But that's a whole other discussion. What I'm seeing uh, as a difference is that the economy in 2008 and 2000 uh, were actually fine. But there's this, this segregation 
between the economy right now and the stock market. Uh, what's going on? Can you elaborate on that? Well, yeah. So um, it may have happened to you. It happened to me last year. We were sitting at home. We weren't able to travel. We weren't able to go anywhere. Um, I even did some internal traveling in the UAE, which was amazing. But what that resulted in is I had more savings. And if you look at the savings rate in the United States, the average savings rate over time is about 6 to 7%. It's currently at 15%. When you have a lot of money in savings, you have one of three things that you're going to do. You're going to pay down debt, which I did, <laughs> or you're going to spend, which you couldn't, or you're going to invest. Now, if you invested, and that's what a lot of people did last year, that means that the price of assets is going to go up, as it did. If you pay down debt, that means that the leverage in the system goes down and effectively, in some ways, the price of assets goes up. And if you spend, which you couldn't, but you will be able to, the economy goes up. So what's going to happen now is that third part, the part where we spend, is going to kick in once finally all the vaccination is done and then the economy is just going to take off. That's my belief at least. In 1929, uh, Joseph Kennedy uh, wanted to get his shoe shined. And then he went to the shop to get his shoe shined, and then the boy, the shoe shining boy, was giving him stock tips. So Joseph was like, if this boy is giving me tips, I need to get out. So not only did he liquidate his position, he also shorted the market. A few weeks back, I saw uh, things about Bitcoin hitting all-time high, and people on Twitter were given a recommendation about stock picks. Uh, when they didn't know, know anything about the market. They didn't even get in. Uh, they just got in recently into the market. So I guess what I'm saying is, what is Bitcoin? And what do you think is happening right now? Um, okay, well look, Bitcoin is just a piece of code. And I know I'm gonna get a lot of hate for saying that. Because I've written that when I was a, a columnist at Bloomberg and I got so much hate mail. It's not even funny. People trolled me on Facebook. It was, it was, I'm not even on Facebook anymore. But it's just a piece of code. It's an entry into a ledger that that entry happens when two different pieces of code meet each other and there is a uh, verification that they connect through a mathematical uh, equation that happens by a third party. So it's, it's somebody else, which is the, the miner, verifies that these two pieces of code match and then there's an entry in the ledger and this entry cannot be changed. This is the important thing. Once it happens, it cannot be changed. You can make another entry. So every transaction creates a new entry in the ledger and creates a new coin, let's call it, a new hash, right? It's just that. You can create a cryptocurrency in five minutes and I could tell you the website but it, it's something that anybody can create because nowadays this sort of cryptography, this sort of ledger is very widespread, very, very widely used. Bitcoin became very popular because it was the first one and people actually use it to exchange money. So there is a value to that hash of Bitcoin, that entry in the ledger that was determined by the market in the same way as there is a value to a gold coin uh, gold coins are worthless, apart from the fact that I consider that one ounce of gold is worth 1,876 because there is a market for it. The same happens with Bitcoin and therefore there is a market for it. Uh, but it, it's just a piece of code. And there are many 
restrictions that governments are putting on it across the world. There are many governments that ban it. Um, many gov some governments tax it, and many banks don't accept any money that has originated from a cryptocurrency transaction because it is seen as a way to launder money. It's a stupid way to launder money because actually Bitcoin can be traced, and this is something people don't know. Okay. Bitcoin transactions are pseudonymous. They're not anonymous, which means that there are traces in that hash that indicate where it started, and you can actually trace it back. And, and nowadays there are task forces in a lot of the big intelligence and, and police places and, and in the world, you know, Sweden, the US, that specialize in tracing back these transactions of Bitcoin to the guy who originated them and putting people in jail using that. So, uh, but it's still used as money laundering for some reason, people seem to not know the fact that they can get caught. But uh, so it's, it's complicated. I, I'm not a big fan. I think it's overhyped. I think it's uh, not understood. That's interesting because I thought that this is one of the selling points of Bitcoin, that it's anonymous. There was recently a bust in Germany where they busted a whole underground uh, group just tracing back the Bitcoin transactions. This happens quite a lot, actually. <laughs> what do you think about the situation where people are just flocking to the stock market Few of my friends took, took the stimulus checks in the United States and that just injected the, the cash into the market. How would that affect people financially? Well, some people made a lot of money, uh, clearly, right? But <laughs> yeah. it, it's not a bad thing to have retail getting more involved in the stock market. That's a misconception, I think. Uh, when common people start getting involved into the stock market, it gets more volatile, but it also sometimes goes up more. In fact, uh, recent case in, in China in 2015 when they had the boom and the bust in the stock market, when the stock market was up more than 100% in six months, it was because all of a sudden people woke up to the stock market. So the common guy was in and they were in big and they were making money and then the government pulled the plug and, and it crashed. So this is one thing, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have retail investors in the stock market. It can be seen sometimes as uh, a sign of exuberance, and that was the case during the dot-com bubble, towards the end of it. In fact, when the dot-com bubble started to burst, uh, institutional investors were selling the market and retail investors were still buying it, and the, the market was already trending down. And you could see by the participation of uh, retail investors increasing at a time when institutional investors were already selling and the market was already crashing. Uh, the participation of retail investors now is still well short of what it was in 1999. So it's not a marker of a bubble yet. Okay, so GameStop, AMC, what is happening? Um, well, I can talk about a specific stock for reasons, uh, because of compliance reasons, but I can tell you what happened. Yeah. So this is something common actually, and, and, and some analysts actually follow very closely what is called the short interest in a stock, which means when there are too many people shorting a stock, there could be a squeeze where the stock price all of a sudden goes up if there is a spurt of buying in that stock. So this is something that is not new for people who are experienced in the market. They tend to follow that and they know that even a, a stock that sometimes has a lower inherent value can shoot up 10-20% in a month just because there is a technical factor where there are too many people or bearish on the stock and all of a sudden it starts going up. Now, the way it works is a little bit like this. You, a short sell 
there are different ways of doing it, but the most common way is you borrow the stock and you immediately sell it out at the current price. And you say, I'm going to pay back the stock in a month and you're going to pay a small premium on that. And But you, what you do is you expect that in a month, the stock price is going to be lower. So in a month, you're going to buy it. You're going to pay back the stock, give back the stock, pay the premium, and you'll still have a profit. If the stock price starts going up, your P&L, your, your profit, starts becoming really bad. And as it gets worse, your reaction is going to be, I better buy the stock sooner before it goes even higher and I start losing even more money to pay back that stock and stop paying the, the premium. Yeah. But when a lot of people do that at the same time, the price goes even higher. So it becomes a spiral up. And this is what happened with these two stocks that you mentioned, uh, where in fact some hedge funds lost billions on that one. Um, so, you know, it, it's something that, that experienced hands watch. It's uh, interesting. And it's interesting that retail investors are realizing it now too. Short sellers, what do you think about what they do? There are different kinds of short sellers. There are the long short funds, which are just your normal uh, hedge funds that has a long position and a short position and they see value in some stocks. So they buy those stocks and they see some stocks that they think are overvalued and they short those stocks. Uh, they are part of the reason why these stocks that you just mentioned went up so much because they have to keep a neutral stance. So if they reduce the short, they also have to reduce the long. Yeah. So this is why the stock market sell off last week. Uh, so those are normal. They've been around for more than 20 years. It's okay. Um, there are short sellers, and this is something that's happened more in the past 10 years, where they usually put a short position first after they have a whole case around it, and then they publish bad research about the company and the, the stock price drops. Now, I personally think that to some extent that is market manipulation, but so far the regulators haven't thought that. Um, they play an important part in some cases. For example, Carson Block from Muddy Waters uh, brought down a number of companies that had uh, questionable accounting, including one that uh, a Chinese company called Sina Forest was, was one of his first big wins. And funnily enough, his first research report on Sina Forest actually didn't point at the real problem. The real problem surfaced later, but he was the first guy to ring the bell and say, this is a problem. And then all of the trouble started coming out of the, the company. Um, so they, they like to claim that they play a part in keeping accounting honest, keeping companies honest. But I, I also question the way that they do it. So, but I don't know. So you think we need more financial specialists on the market as a whole? Because what I got from what you mentioned, even in the Muddy Water example, these people didn't even point out the real problem. They didn't even find out what was wrong in the beginning. They, 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 but they, they found other things that were wrong. They're like forensic accountants that really look into. Unfortunately, I think what has happened with the financial industry over the past decade is um, margins have squeezed a lot. Uh, and this is a regulatory problem that, that came out mostly after the 2008 crisis. Uh, the way that banks were forced to account for their research and, and they couldn't put bank money into trading anymore. So the value of research fell a lot for the bank as a generator of revenues. And because it fell a lot, then all of a sudden you had research analysts that had to do a lot more with a lot fewer resources. So if a research analyst before might have had four stocks that he would follow, he now is following 40 
there's no way that you can do a really good job about following those 40 stocks so well, right? To the point that you're going to be nitpicking and finding all the fraud. So I think this is more something that the regulators will have to think about going forward. And in some ways, the the short selling versus retail uh, discussion might start bringing up some of these issues, which are issues uh, that need to be addressed. Since COVID-19 happened, green investment has seen a surge. Do you think it's done for a quick buck? Or do you think it's a trend that the market has picked up on? It, it, it came even before COVID-19, actually. If you remember the, the World Economic Forum in Davos last year, which was in January, so just before the world woke up to the fact that the pandemic was going to be global, uh, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, committed, BlackRock is the biggest asset management, asset management firm in the world, committed to greening his portfolio, and he's actually followed through on it. So this is, this is something that has been coming for a while. Um, it is a matter of a lot of debate, but just to put some numbers, for example, green bonds last year, according to Bloomberg, were about $230 billion of issuance, if I'm not mistaken. I'm speaking off memory here. And that was a 10% increase over the, the previous year, but the previous year was an almost 100% increase over 2018. So you have a very strong growth in the green bond issuance and therefore on the other side on the investment. So Larry Fink, all of the big money managers are talking about it, they're paying attention to it. The question becomes how much of it is really green? And this is one of the, the problems that you face and in fact nobody has actually given a proper answer. The International Capital Markets Association, which has the, the green bond label, they were the first ones to start they came out just saying that any green bond is something that may help reduce carbon. I'm simplifying, but that's more or less how they define it. So it can be anything. It can be, you know, I pay some money for people to stop smoking and that reduces carbon. I, it doesn't make, it's not very clear. Um, and last year, the European Union finally said, okay, we're going to give you a set of rules that are going to say this is green and this is not. But their rules are so stringent, so serious, that pretty much everything that's out there is not going to be considered green if those rules remain in place. So those are already being discussed as well. The bottom line is, yes, it is here to stay. Um, there is an, there's a value in investing green, not only from the standpoint that you're helping the, the world and we need to help the world get greener, but also from the standpoint that if BlackRock Fidelity, Vanguard, all of them are investing green. That means that most of the money will be in the green investments and will come out of the brown investments. Therefore, if you're in the brown, there will be a flow of money out of there that if you have less people chasing an asset, the asset price goes down. So you want to be in green even if you're not green because that's where the money is going. So another question I got is, what are the greatest lessons you have learned throughout your career? Oh, that's a good one. Um, hmm. I think be skeptical is the first one. Be cynical. Never trust anything for face value. And, and especially in finance, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there that come and offer you very high returns that are super safe. There is no such thing. If there were high returns that are super safe, that guy wouldn't be selling it to you. Okay, um, you have to do your due diligence. You have to understand your own risk aversion. You have to understand what you're willing to lose, what you're willing to win. 
how much you want to make and what are you willing to risk and really read the fine print it's this i think is the biggest lesson i learned uh, read the fine print the other thing is uh, don't panic i i went through that you know don't panic both ways don't do fear of missing out i told you i bought a house in 2008 in the middle of the crisis and at that time i thought well prices have already dropped 15 percent in the u.s i gotta buy now well, if I had waited for another year, they would have dropped another 15%. So that was the, the panic of, I need to do, get in now. So fear of missing out, forget that. Don't panic. And don't panic on the other way too. I sold my stock portfolio at the time um, in December 2008 because I thought that the market was going to keep collapsing. Uh, it's just, that was almost the bottom. The bottom was February 2009. After that, it just went up, 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 up. So if I had just held it together, waited, I would have actually seen all my losses be recovered. Don't panic. Don't panic about getting in. Don't panic about getting out. If I'm going to invest in emerging markets, you are the expert. What should I take into account? Yeah, emerging markets, uh, the reason why some hedge funds love to invest in emerging markets is because they are not so efficient. There's a information gap. Um, for instance, I, I was once a speaker in a panel in a very emerging market is considered a frontier market. I'm not going to say the name because I'm going to tell a story that's a bit. And I was moderating a panel with the three main brokers in that emerging market, stockbrokers, uh, the owners of the three biggest stock brokerages there. And before the, the panel, they were joking. They were saying, oh, you know, we always meet for coffee on Fridays and we determine what's going to go up and what's going to go down. They were only half joking. That, that actually happened. So it, unless you know the emerging market, be careful. That's where most of the money can be made right now. In fact, we're very bullish in emerging markets. But uh, you have to understand the dynamics, the government dynamics. You have to understand the relationships of the companies with the government. That's very important, for example, in China. If you invest in a Chinese company, you have to take into account what is that company's relationship with the government. Look at what happened with Ant Financial, if you need an example, right? It was unclear, you know, Jack Ma questioned the government and his IPO went through. Now, in fact, now they're talking about the IPO coming back um, because he, he certainly would have made amends with the government. But this is, these are important things you have to take into account. Who is behind the company? That's also important. In some emerging markets, and Brazil, unfortunately, is one of them, Indonesia is another one, some people are very good at taking the money of foreign investors and running away. So know who you're investing with. At the same time, in Indonesia and in Brazil, there are amazing companies that are great investments, but you have to know who's behind them. This is important. Know who's behind them. Understand the emerging markets. Understand the government regulation and how it deals with the, with the various companies you're investing in before you get involved. That's a very valid point. I don't know if I've told you this, but we have government Brazil. Uh, this brings me to my next question. There are many sectors in finance and people are wondering which sector should I pick to put my money in? Asset allocation, basically. Well, we are, I, I can tell you which ones have lagged behind and, and what would be the drivers for them to do well. So financials and energy are some of the worst performers of last year. In fact, financials caught up since November. Financial stocks on average have been up more than 20%. Um, so I've, I was saying that financials were lagging until early last year, but they have caught up. 
Part of the reason why financials lagged is because the banks stopped paying dividends because they were just trying to figure out where we were going. They put a lot of provisions towards their potential bad loans. Um, and, and that eats up into the profits. And what could happen now is that these provisions get reversed. So this is money that they set aside and they say, oh my God, there's a lot of people are not going to pay the bills. And once these people start paying the bills, and what we have seen is that the defaults are much lower than expected, infinitely lower. It's like the, some of the forecasts were for in the US, 14% of defaults, and now we're seeing closer to 4%. So it's much lower. So some of those provisions get freed up. And once they get freed up, that goes back into the profits and they can start paying dividends again. And that's why financials have done so well since November, because people started to price in that move. Energy is another one where they have really lagged. They're still behind because people are expecting oil prices to remain low for a long time. And at FAB, we don't believe in that. We think that actually oil prices are going to pick up. Right now, the Brent crude is, is trading at 58.7 today. Um, and this is in line with our prediction of an average price for Brent crude of 58 this year. If that does play out, the oil, oil companies and anything related to oil, including GCC, will do very well. And this is part of the reason also that we are very bullish on local stocks here in the UAE. I can vouch for this because I've seen a search in financial stocks myself. Um, buy and hold is always good. As I mentioned, don't panic. And, you know, I know a few people who panicked last year when the market was tanking and then lost a lot of money and then tried to chase it when it was going up and then lost a lot more money. So buy and hold is always the best strategy. If you're investing, try to invest for the long term. Try to just turn your eyes to the side and not see what's happening when it's too volatile. Now, that said, a lot of the gains in a stock market happen in very few days. If you look at, for example, financials, it's a good example. I just gave it, gave it. Financial stocks in the US all the way until November were in the red. And then in the past two months, they've just shot up. So, you know, if you have a big chunk of money and you want to go in, it's good to try and find the right time to go in, although that's dangerous because Honestly, there are, there's a lot of research that shows that it's almost impossible to find the right time. And people who say that get the right time, don't. They get the right time today and tomorrow they get the wrong time and their losses make up for their gains. And on average, there is no such thing as timing the market. So it's always better to buy and hold. In fact, the best strategy, if I may, is to just put a little bit of money every month. Because then if something is cheap today, you bought it a little bit of it cheap. It's expensive tomorrow, so you bought a little bit of it a little bit more expensive on average you're getting a good price for it so that this is the strategy that that i think is the most effective i actually agree with you i told people on twitter to do this find an index fund dollar cost averaging put an amount each month and forget that it, it ever exists you'll make money out of doing this there are a lot of index funds and you have to choose one ultimately what are the criteria that you have to look for in an index fund well the first thing is choose the index, right? The second thing that goes with any fund is find out who the managers are. What is their tenure? How long have they been there? Is this the only index fund there is for that index? Um, and there's something called the tracking error. If you're looking for an index fund, you want the lowest tracking error possible. And that means how close to the 
index itself does the fund perform. So if the, the index is up 10% in a year, the fund is 9.98% up. So that's a very low tracking error. That's good if you're looking for an index fund. Um, and finally, the fees, right? But be careful because sometimes something that's very low fee might have a very high tracking error. Read the fine print as well. Um, I'll give one example. Last year, a lot of people were trying to get, were trying to predict that oil prices were gonna go up, um, especially when oil prices went into negative for the WTI. And it turned out that the index funds didn't, didn't repeat exactly the oil performance because they weren't buying oil physical. They were buying derivatives on oil. So those derivatives had a different performance from the actual oil price. Um, so make sure you check the fine print too to see if the index fund, how much of that index fund can be invested in derivatives, can be used to short and so on and so forth because that also makes a difference in the performance. For retail investors or someone who's relatively new to investments, uh, like, okay, I'm getting into, into the market and I want to get into an index fund. Where do I find the, this, this information? Like, who's the fund manager? What are the fee structure? Et cetera, et cetera. That's usually the basic fact sheet for an, for, for, uh, an index fund. They're going to indicate what the index is, what's the performance of the index over one year, three years, five years. What is the performance of the fund over three years, one year, five, three years, five years? It was, there will be tracking error. There will be a sharp ratio, which is risk rewards, but that should be more tied to the index. Um, there will be the name of the fund managers and how long they've been in the position. That should be easy to find. And it's usually on the fact sheet. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Hopefully we'll see you in the second season. <laughs> yeah. The podcast. Good luck with Garm. Thank you. Thank you. So <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. you.